The Old Testament reading for this, the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, comes from the prophet Jeremiah, the 28th chapter. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah the prophet in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Yet hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. And this is the word of the Lord. O oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Epistle reading comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the seventh chapter. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel, which serves as the text for our sermon this morning, comes according to St. Matthew, the 10th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. 
I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And this is the gospel of our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's strange to hear Jesus say that, isn't it? It's strange that the Savior of the world, the one who has come to redeem us from sin, is now standing before us saying that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. This is not the typical picture that we have of Jesus. We always think of him as a kindly young man with gentle eyes, a slight smile on his face, the epitome of peace and serenity. We rarely ever imagine him with a sword in hand, riling people up, getting ready for a fight. Now it is true that few of the accounts we have of our Savior in the Gospels portray him as angry or anything but peaceful. But it would be a mistake of the first order to assume that Jesus is just some laid-back, gentle peacenik who's perfectly happy to just sit idly by as this world runs itself off the rails. The fact is, though, many people have made just such an assumption. And as we know from experience, a few bad assumptions can kind of ruin everything. All too often, we assume that our ways must be the same as God's ways. We assume that since we are Christians, we have been granted the gift of knowing the mind of God. And so when we think something is right or good, we assume that this means God thinks the same thing. The disciples to whom Jesus was speaking in our text, they fell into that trap. They thought that Jesus had come to restore peace to Israel, that he was going to make their country a world power once again, that he was going to help throw off the chains of the Roman Empire and have Israel calling all the shots once more. And so Jesus gathers them together here and sets them straight, making it clear that their assumptions were off base, that what they had in mind was not the way it was actually going to be. And yet, even with this warning, even with seeing just how wrong the assumptions of the disciples were, we still find ourselves doing exactly the same thing. We've been given many examples of how man's ideas and God's are not the same. This is set before us very clearly all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. 
We read about how David assumed he should be the one to build a temple for God. We read about how the disciples James and John assumed that the towns who rejected Jesus should be destroyed with fire from heaven. We read through in the Old Testament and the Gospel readings today how people assumed that God would give them peace. With the Old Testament false prophets going so far as to say, Thus saith the Lord, when he had indeed not said it. Now all of these sound like good ideas, don't they? I mean, what's wrong with building a glorious temple for God? What's wrong with showing people the dire consequences of rejecting God's word? What's wrong with having peace in your life? And so because it sounded right to them, all of these people assumed that this was God's way as well. In truth, though, none of those things were the will of God. They were simply the hopes and the assumptions of sinful people. But you know, we don't even have to look through the Bible to see people making bad assumptions about God's will, do we? I mean, we just have to look around us. Or rather, look within us. In this text, Jesus tells the disciples not to assume that what they want is God's will. And so as faithful disciples of Christ, we too need to hear the words of Jesus and see that we are making the exact same assumptions. One thing that so many Christians assume today is that love is the answer to everything. Loving everyone will solve all of our problems. Love will conquer all. Love is all you need. Now it's true. We are to love our neighbor. And Jesus Christ commanded us to love everyone. The problem with our assumption, though, is that it has changed the meaning of the word love. When our world today speaks of love, what it's usually talking about is tolerance or acceptance or encouragement. Those are not the same. Tolerance and acceptance might seem like love. They might lead to a short-term friendliness that looks like love, but they're not. Is it love to tolerate a friend's drug addiction? To sit back and watch him kill himself, thinking, I don't want to hurt his feelings because I love him so much. Is it love to accept or encourage a child's desire to play in traffic because that's what they've chosen to do? course not. You would be crazy to say that either of those things could be considered love. Out of love, you would step into the situation and attempt to change it. You would confront your friend. You would admonish the child. To sit and do nothing, that's actually the very opposite of love. To apathetically say, oh, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, that would be a blatant lack of concern and love on your part. So why do we assume that it's loving to overlook the spiritual self-destruction of others? When we see those around us who don't have faith in Jesus Christ, who are swallowing false doctrine as truth, who are following false gods, we need to confront them with the truth. Not in order to antagonize them and prove that we're the only ones who are actually right, but rather we confront them out of love. We use God's word to show them that the path that they are on is not a good one, a path that leads to destruction and damnation. We show them and ourselves the error of our ways, 
Not by pointing to our own imperfect lives, but by pointing to God's holy and perfect word that does not change to fit our culture and our assumptions and our desires. We proclaim Christ boldly. Proclaim that his word of law is absolute. That he alone has redeemed the world by his grace, even if it upsets and alienates others. This we do not out of hatred, ignorance or bigotry, but purely out of love. So what is love? It's not sitting by idly in order to maintain peace in our lives. It's not some silly, fluffy emotion filled with hugs and goo-goo eyes from across the room. If you want to know what real love is, don't look to young romance. Don't look to some emotionally charged campfire praise circle. If you want to see real love, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there, on that nasty, splintery, blood-stained hunk of wood, true love was shown in its greatest form. There on that cross, God himself gave up his life in agony and in pain so that his sinful, rebellious creation could live and be spared of his righteous wrath. Out of love, God suffered and died for all the sins that we had committed. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, willingly suffered the agony of crucifixion, the torments of hell itself, to forgive us of all of our sin. That's love. Jesus died for you, even though you're a sinner. Even though you were of no use to him whatsoever, even though you were his enemy because of your sin, he gave up his life for you purely out of love, real love. Now, since our assumptions regarding love tend to be wrong, I think it's safe to say that we've probably made some other bad assumptions as well. What about Jesus' first statement regarding our assumptions about peace? I mean, after all, peace and love go together like peas and carrots. Is our idea of peace as wrong as our idea of love? Well, obviously, yes. Jesus says that we are not to assume that he has come to bring about peace to this earth. And as I said earlier, that seems like a jarring statement at first glance. But you see, the peace that he is rebuking here is that earthly peace that we assume is so very important. We assume that God wants us to live in peace and rest, to have it easy here on earth. I mean, after all, he loves us, and he wants what's best for us, right? And what could be better than life here on earth with no strife, no conflict, no worries? That's what we think of when we think peace. And so once again, we assume that that's what God wants for us as well. And once again, though, our sinful nature is wrong. We want everyone to just get along, to live side by side without fighting. If we could do this, wouldn't God be happy? And since most conflict comes from one person saying that another is wrong, let's just stop doing that, and then we'll have peace. Again, if we don't tell someone that the spiritual road that they're on is a dangerous one, we could indeed have some semblance of earthly peace in our life. But this is not what God had in mind, though. 
In fact, he makes that very clear in this passage today. He says that his coming into this world, it is going to set people against each other. Those of us who have faith will, by our new nature, be compelled to confront the unbelievers around us. We have a desire and a duty to proclaim Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, even if it offends and bothers those who are closest to us. We don't seek to offend and provoke. We don't assume that the bigger of a jerk we are, the better we are at sharing God's word. But we will not sit back idly and watch our family and friends walk down the path to hell for the sake of earthly peace. Instead, we will speak up. We will boldly proclaim the truth. And because we do so, we will upset the earthly peace in our lives. We will have our family members angry at us as we remind them that they are sinners and the life they are living leads to death. We will have our friends telling us to mind our own business and keep our faith to ourselves. We will have the world telling us that we need to be more open-minded if we are all going to get along. But when we listen to that, when we strive for that earthly peace in our lives... We are not doing the will of God, but rather the will of man, the will of our own sinful heart. When we decide that we would rather get along with our family, even if it means hiding the truth of Jesus, Jesus says that we are not worthy of him. When we love our family in an earthly way, protecting their feelings and egos by overlooking spiritual deficiencies and death traps, we are neglecting the work that Jesus Christ has given us to do. If we stop proclaiming Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen Savior of the world, if we trade that in for an earthly peace and harmony, what would we have left? More importantly, what would they benefit from it? Dear friends in Christ, Jesus did not come to this world to bring about an earthly peace, as we might assume. Instead, he came to do something far greater. The peace that Jesus brings, it is not the fickle peace and love that this world has to offer. but It is instead an eternal and heavenly peace. When the angels came to the shepherds that night when Jesus was born, they announced peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The peace that they proclaimed, the peace that Jesus brought to our world, it is not the temporary peace of Christmas where we all pretend to get along for a little while. It is an eternal peace between God and man. Sinful humankind had every right to be terrified of the perfect and holy God of the universe. We were right to fear his wrath because by our sin we are his enemies. And yet he came to earth to proclaim peace. Not peace just within our fallen world because we know that's not the case. The peace that he proclaimed, it's an eternal peace in heaven for all mankind. Our debt was paid. Our sins were forgiven. We were no longer at war with God. God proclaimed peace by proclaiming us holy, innocent, and righteous in his sight. That doesn't mean that he simply decided to overlook our sin. No, all of our sins were punished to the full extent fullest extent of the law, because God is just. Punishment was merely taken out on Jesus rather than us. 
The peace that we have with God, it was brought about only by the brutal death of Jesus Christ. His blood cleansed us and has earned the peace that we now enjoy. His death forgave every one of our sins. And yet death could not hold him, just as it now can no longer hold us. On that first Easter morning, Jesus Christ showed his mastery over death by rising from the grave. He conquered death for us all, guaranteeing us that all who look to him in faith will likewise rise to eternal life in heaven. Through his death and his resurrection, we have now been given peace and love. Not the peace and love that we might assume is best for us, but a heavenly peace, a divine love, the kind that we could never fully comprehend. In peace, our Lord comes to us through his word, building us up and strengthening our faith. In love, he lifted us out of death through our baptism, nurtures us with his true body and blood in the Lord's Supper. This is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that we are forgiven by the shed blood of Christ, and that he comes to us continually, richly, and daily providing all that we need. And while we are prone to making all sorts of bad assumptions about God, here we don't need to assume anything, because God himself has assured us. His word guarantees that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient, and we now have been given his robe of righteousness. We needn't worry that we've got the wrong idea about our forgiveness because God himself has told us in no uncertain terms. Time and time again, God's word tells us clearly that we are forgiven, that we are perfect in his eyes now, and that we have been granted his peace. Here, thankfully, we don't have to assume anything because God himself has spelled it out ever so plainly for all of us, that by the cross of Jesus Christ alone, by his empty tomb alone, you are forgiven of every one of your sins, and eternal life in heaven is yours. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen.